Hebrews, the 11th, I mean the 9th chapter, verses 11, and we'll read through 14. And when you have it, please stand. Right before James. And the word of God reads as follows. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and the perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh, their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. God's word for God's people and God's people said, Amen. Amen. May be seated. For the time that we're going to spend together, I want to talk about a perfect sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice. What does it take for a business to be successful? Money? The right people, uh, the right market conditions, proper advertising, all of those good things can can, uh, make for a good business, right? You give somebody all those things, their chances of succeeding are really great, right? If they follow all the rules that are set before them by the people that have come before them or the laws of physics or the laws of business or economics, They should be able to do right. They should be able to do well with it, right? Well, allow me to introduce you to a man by the name of Samuel Pierpont Langley. Samuel Pierpont Langley was around during the late 1800s to the early 1900s. Uh, In terms of science and technology, He would be what the young folks called a beast. He worked for the Smithsonian and Harvard at the same time. He had military funding. He had all kind of uh, good works. And he had been quite successful in anything he set out to do. So the military gave him $70,000. They gave him $70,000 in the 1900s. (laughs) I looked up the uh, equivalent of that, what that would be in 2012, because they gave him $70,000 in 1903. It would have been $1.8 million. Why did they give him this money? They gave him this money because they wanted for a... um, they wanted him to make a quote-unquote flying machine. He had already made a, a flying machine that could fly without a person in it. But he, they wanted him to make one that people would be able to fly. 
So they gave him $1.8 million in today's time. He went out and hired all the right people, the best engineers, the best people he could get to pie. He had the staff. He had the equipment. He had magazines and newspapers following him around. He was a rock star in that time amongst the scientific community because they gave him the money. They get, he went out and got the people. He had all the right conditions. He was going to build a flying machine. He called it the Aerodome. It was almost like a motorcycle with wings. It failed. Horribly. But he had all the right people. He had the money. He had the credentials. He had the backing. He had previous success. But it failed. He did not make the Aerodome successful. Bring in the Wright brothers. No credentials. No official credentials. They just thought that man should be able to fly. And so they did it. And they started, he started, uh, Samuel Pierpont and Langley started in 1903 and stopped in 1903. <laughs> the Wright brothers started before the 1900s and did it all the way up to 1903. Trying and failing, trying and failing, but kept trying. They brought their own parts to, the, to, the, to Kitty Hawk when they wanted to fly because they knew they were going to crash. They'd bring enough spare parts to rebuild their, gl their glider five times over. That how they'd go out after breakfast, crash five times, come back home for dinner, wake up next time, do it again. We back. Because they knew that man should be able to fly. So they did it. They didn't have that much money. Certainly didn't have the backing of the U.S. military. None of that. But uh, December 17th, 1903, they took off and they flew for 14 seconds and landed without crashing. And so everybody knows about the Wright brothers, but not too many people know about Samuel Pierpont Langley. Funny thing is, is the Wright brothers would crash four or five times a day and they just went on. We got our parts. We're going to sacrifice the time and the effort and going and failing and failing again until we did it. So they crashed almost four or five times a day. Samuel Pilpart Langley crashed twice. He crashed once on October 7th, 1903. And then he crashed again. Well, he, he wasn't flying it, but his engineer crashed again December 8th, 1903. And he said, we're done. We're done. You want to know why he was done? Because December 17th, 1903, the Wright brothers did it. So after the Wright brothers did it, he didn't care no more. He went on to other stuff. He wasn't trying to sacrifice what he needed in order to, to do it further. I mean, now, if I had $1.8 million and I was supposed to invent something and I saw somebody else already did it, I would go reach out to them and see how I could improve upon the technology. Let's see how let's work together. Let's collaborate. Let's see if we can get it to fly for 30 seconds now instead of 14 seconds. But no. The Wright brothers did it. I'm done. Y'all can have it. I'm going to go do something else. Because he, he had no invested sacrifice in it. They gave him everything he needed to do it. But the Wright 
brothers sacrificed. And that's kind of the subject matter that's going on when we uh, take a look at the book of Hebrews. We're talking about sacrifice. The original priests during that time and the Hebrew people worshipped in what was called a tabernacle or a tent. They didn't have their own land yet. They didn't have their own place to build a nice temple. So they built a tabernacle. Literally in Hebrew, the word is tent. And it was a temporary spot where they could go and worship and experience God. Almost like the tent revivals of today. It had an outer court, an inner court, and a holy of holies. And these people were not in their own land, but they they used symbols to try to represent and remind them of the presence of God. So they had the Ark of a Covenant in the Holy Holiest of Holies. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, it was made of gold and it was like a almost like a toy box or a trunk. But it had angels on the top of it. Inside of it had Aaron's rod. It had the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and it had a golden urn with a pot of manna. Which was remind them when they were out in the wilderness, God fed them manna so they didn't have to worry about what to eat every day. So they had this presence of God. And I like the um, (laughs) when I think about the, the Ark of the Covenant and the angels on top of it, they were called cherubim and seraphim and uh, six winged animals, uh, uh, not animals, angels, the, the cherubim. Two to cover the face, uh, two to cover the feet, and two to fly with. And they had to cover their face because a lot of times they sat right next to God on the throne. And the glory was even too much for them. And they would say, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, heaven and earth are full of your glory. And uh, the, the Hebrew scholars used to say that when they sang holy, holy, holy with the rest of the angels, they sang it in the round. So one group was seeing holy, holy, holy. And then when they got to Lord God Almighty, the next group was seeing holy, holy, holy. And when the first group got to heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest, the third group was singing holy, holy, holy. So that at all times, somebody was calling God holy. Because he is holy at all times. And he deserves to be called holy at all times. But they had this representation of the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. And the high priest, once a year, just the high priest, it was a lot of other priests around, but just the high priest would go in to the holies of holies. The worship would happen out in the inner court and the outer courts. But once a year, they would go into the holy of holies where they believed God was. And he would take the blood for the sins of the people during the day of atonement. And they would sacrifice the blood of goats and sheaves and, and, and they would go in. And it was interesting because they used to tie a rope around the high priest. Because when the high priest went in, he might not have been right. And if the high priest wasn't right, when he entered the Holy of Holies, he would have died. And so they had that rope. So, up, oh, wrong high priest. Let's go ahead and pull him out. I knew something was right with, wrong with that pastor. I, I mean, sorry. Uh, <laughs> So they would pull him out, but he did that because the people wanted to maintain a relationship with God and their sin blocked them. And so the blood 
and the sacrifices that were made for them was so that that block or that barrier could be removed. And they did it once a year. But they did it every year because the redemption was not eternal. Uh, they often make a, a joke about certain kind of foods at restaurants that if you eat it, uh, you're still hungry in an hour. You know, and, and there, I, I'm, I'm personally not a fan of eating food and still being hungry. And, and I can imagine that on a larger scale where every time I'm thinking that the barrier has been removed from my direct relationship with God. And then I come back next year and it's, it's, it's stopped again. I, I, I can't really imagine that being something pleasant. But yet the high priest had to go in each year and sacrifice and then next year and the next year and the next year but the author of Hebrews says when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that have come and through a greater and perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation see we can try to do things but man made things don't last God made things Last, And so what they were saying at the time is that because Jesus went to the cross and sacrificed himself for us who, who knew no sin, but took the blame for us, we no longer had to do that. We no longer had to sacrifice because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He took the blame for us willingly. I love my sister. She is a wonderful sister. But when we used to go to my father's house, I was not really a fan of Jessica or my stepbrother Eric or Amanda when she came along. Because if Eric and Jessica or Jessica and Amanda were doing something they were not supposed to do, they would get a whooping. And then I would get a whooping. Dad, why am I getting in trouble for what Jessica, Eric, and Amanda did? Well, you're the oldest, and you let it happen. So I was not, I really, really did not like that. So I would try to do everything in my power to prevent that because I was not willing to take the bump. <laughs> for my brothers and sisters I ain't do nothing I would try to go months without getting spankings I didn't like them they hurt they were humiliating then I couldn't play video games for a long time so I really did not like getting in trouble and so I didn't like getting in trouble for my own self how much more would I not like getting in trouble for somebody else but Jesus took a punishment that we were supposed to get more severe than a grounding, more severe than a spanking, more severe than getting your Xbox 360, PlayStation, Sega Genesis, whatever. More than that getting taken away. He took away the penalty of death, hell in the grave. As a perfect sacrifice, he was the redemption for all. We can do things 
a bunch of times to try to make it right. But Jesus only had to do it once. And then he went to go sit at the right hand of the father. As the scripture says, and as we say in our, our um, Apostles Creed affirmation of faith. Why? Because he did his job. There's no need to uh, continue to do something if you've done it right. And he's done it right. All it is up for us to do is accept him and welcome him into our hearts as our Lord and Savior. And, understand, and believe in our heart that he rose from the dead. He died for our sins. On the day of atonement, which also means reconciliation and making right. Uh, the Hebrews call it Yom Kippur. The sins of the people were put on a scapegoat. They called it a scapegoat in Leviticus. And they would put the sins on the people and they, uh, of the people on this scapegoat. And release it into the wilderness. But while we were yet enemies, Romans 10 says, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Surely having reconciled, we will be saved by his life. There is no more need for a scapegoat. Somebody else has already taken the blame. And he did it quite well. So this sacrifice, it was a timely sacrifice. Let the church say timely. Timely is something done or occurring at a favorable or useful time. If Jesus, Jesus did his sacrifice at the time he did it because he had to fulfill all of the prophecies. There were, there were prophecies coming that said a, that a son of man would come and he would be born of a virgin and he had to go through this and he had to go through that and he had to go be from here and go there and all of these different sacrifices that come and as they would say uh, in, in the Old Testament Jesus is concealed and in the New Testament Jesus is revealed all of those prophecies that forecasted him for coming that all happened in the Old Testament he had to go through everything be born of a virgin and crucified and those things he did in a proper time. And because of that, the time that it was the, the sacrifice was proper. If it had been done any other way, he could not have been our savior. So we had to fulfill everything that happened in the Old Testament. I often say that the Bible is like a report. And its thesis statement is Jesus is our savior. The Old Testament says what was supposed to happen first. The New Testament talks about what he did in the Gospels and the, and the epistles tell us how we're supposed to live afterwards and he's coming back again. All together. So the parts that you may not like <laughs> and the parts that you do like, they all have to run together. But it was timely. It came at the right time. It was also troublesome. Let the church say troublesome. Causing difficulty or anguish. I'm sure there was some anguish in going to suffer for somebody who really didn't deserve it. But he loved us so much that he was willing to die for our sins. He had to be beaten. He had to be accused. He had to suffer because he had to die. And then he had to rise again. But it was troublesome. 
It's not easy. If it was easy, we all could do it. But we all have our own cross to bear. But Jesus bore the main cross for us and our sins. And it was a tremendous sacrifice. Let the whole church say tremendous. Jesus lived and walked among us and knew no sin so that he could take on our sin. That was a tremendous sacrifice. Living a life without sinning ever so that you can take on the sins of the whole world. Of people who weren't even born yet. People who weren't even a thought in the eye of the person who there was a thought in the eye of that person. Generation to generation. But he did it for us. It was no small feat to take on the sins of the entire world. But Jesus did it for us. So his sacrifice was tremendous. But why... Sacrifice yourself for someone who does not deserve it. Grace. Grace, getting more than what you deserve. We are big on grace in the United Methodist Church. John Wesley even talks about the means of grace and the works of piety. And he has an explanation in which he talks about Provenient grace and justifying grace and sanctifying grace. And I'm reminded of Ephesians 28 where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace. He covers us and loves us and cares for us even though we don't deserve it. Because his grace is sufficient and his mercy is everlasting. And John Wesley explains it where grace and the different stages of grace are like a house. You imagine a big old house with a big old porch. And the provenient grace is the covering you have before you know it. God reaching out and covering you and protecting you before you come in. It's kind of like sitting on the porch of a house. You're at the house. You're covered by the house. Because you're on the porch. So you're out of the elements. But you're not quite in the house. Justifying grace. That's the moment you decide to accept Jesus Christ into your heart. That's stepping through the front door. So you've got off the house. You've gotten off the front porch. And now you're through the door. So you've experienced the provenient grace. The covering. The while you were in your womb. I knew you. Then you have the justifying grace. Making a decision to step through the door. Being made right. That decision is a justifying moment. A justification. And then you have the sanctifying grace. Coming into the house. You come into the house. There are rules to follow. There are, there are barriers. There are rooms you can go into. But that is a sanctifying grace. That is covering you and coming into the house. You may not deserve to be on the porch. Of someone's house but God lets you you may not deserve to go through the door but God lets you you may not deserve to still be in the house but God lets you and that is the way the grace covers us we may not deserve to still be here but God lets us we may not deserve to be forgiven of our sins but God lets us we may not deserve to continue on in sanctifying and improving ourselves in Christ Jesus but God lets us And in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
I invite you to come on in. The doors of the church are open.